Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. It's the Bitter Southerner Podcast, Episode 4 of our second season from Georgia Public Broadcasting and the magazine I edit, The Bitter Southerner. I'm Chuck Reese, and today we're talking about cake. Not just any cake, but the exactly right cake. Now, I don't want to start the show off with a downer, but here are a couple of facts about your host. One, I was an only child, and two, my mama died of cancer when I was just 11 years old. And I bring this up today only because of something that I learned a couple of days after she passed away. And I learned it the first time I walked into the kitchen of the funeral home where her body lay in repose. And on the tables in there, I had never seen so many beautiful cakes in my life. And that was the beginning of my knowledge about a specific part of Southern culture. See, when a small town community in the South prepares to come together to honor someone who has passed away, something clicks in the brains of the community's cake bakers. They get to thinking. They remember little acts of kindness done for them by the departed. They remember what she loved to eat, the little things she said to them over the supper table. And then they take all that information and bake the exactly right cake and the cake stands on a table in a funeral home kitchen not merely as solace for the grieving but as a tribute to the one who's gone away the exactly right cake is in its own humble way a historical document and that dear hearts is our subject today welcome to episode four the exactly right cake. Now, my view of the cake as historical manuscript was mostly just my own conjecture, and even that was shallow, until I met a woman from Nashville, Tennessee, named Ann Byrne. Some of y'all might know her by her nickname, the Cake Mix Doctor, and she is indeed the person who has taught America how to take that box of Duncan Hines in the cabinet and turn it into something special. Now, Anne has written a host of cookbooks. She's been on the New York Times bestseller list, and she has sold millions of copies of them. But among her books, I have a favorite. It's called American Cake, and in it, Anne traces the evolution of cake in America from the 1600s to the present day. And not just what was cooked and where, but also who cooked it. And when I read American Cake, I learned many things I felt like I should have known already. So we invited Anne to our studio to talk about them. I had to look at recipes, not only thinking who could have afforded that recipe, but who made that recipe, who was in the kitchen. Coconut cake, uh, jam cakes, caramel cake, pound cake, fruit cake, all these labor-intensive recipes that... Southerners have bragged about for generations really did come 
as a result of having slave labor in the kitchen. There is no way, from a labor standpoint, before KitchenAids, before electricity, that you could have beat pound cake batter. Think about incorporating a pound of butter with a pound of sugar, 12 eggs, a pound of flour. That was a lot, a lot of weight, and it took a very strong and able cook to do that. Um, and on and on, chopping the amount of fruit that goes into a fruit cake. And then when you get into different types of layered cakes and the tea cakes, and when sugar became less expensive and you had those seven-minute icings, who whipped all the egg whites? Yeah. I mean, it's very humbling. It's very, for me, it was very humbling. And I felt like as a writer and as someone who loves to bake, I had to be able to tell that story any time I could and to be comfortable giving the acknowledgement mm. when I could. Yeah. In recent times, there seems to be a greater willingness to pull the lid off of mm. truths like that, that we once thought it was more convenient to ignore. Yeah, that's true. That common blessing we've heard a thousand times. Right. Bless this food and the hands that prepared it. The last part of that is way deeper than most people think. I think you're exactly right. And when we say those blessings now, I think of that very thought. And anyone who has put together a lot of effort to, for a holiday meal, you're feeding 16 at the table. You you know there were a couple of people or one person in particular who went out of their way and has been on their feet all day. I think it's just courtesy to acknowledge them in the blessing. We also acknowledge people who are not here, i.e. in the South, those who've died. Mm -hmm. I mean, in every blessing we have with our family, we have to say that because somebody's it's it's that holiday and and Aunt Mary Jo's not there, you know. So it's courtesy to her children that she be remembered in the blessing. Yeah, we have a lot of holdover like that. And we do, we do, and and the blessing at the table should give us occasion to talk about those things that we used to ignore. I think it's good. It's a very good point. I like to think that every time. A new culture becomes part of the South, whether it's, you know, Latin immigrants or, you know, refugee populations like the ones who live in my little hometown of Clarkston, Georgia, mm -hmm. you know, from places like Syria or Vietnam or all those people bring a new flavor. Definitely. That gets thrown in the gumbo pot. The choco flan, those tres leches, those cakes of Latin and Mexican heritage came out of canning factories, recipes off of milk cans in factories where people learned how to bake a cake using this product. Then those swept up into Texas and you started seeing tres leches cake and choco flan in Texas. Um, so I think it's such so interesting to look at ingredients in the cakes we've loved and say, why did they use that? Why did grandmother put evaporated milk in her chocolate icing on her chocolate cake? Oh, that's right. She's from Oklahoma originally. Right. It was a frontier ingredient as well. So, so a lot of those Texas recipes use canned milk for various reasons. 
And it was really interesting to me going through American Cake that when you finally work us up to the 2000s, mm -hmm. you know, you really start seeing how closely connected these modern recipes are to people's homelands, either mm -hmm. regions of, of America that they've grown up in or mm -hmm. cultures they bring with them as immigrants, you know, like chaka flan yeah. and the tres leches cake, which Very we've all grown so. to love. Yeah, I think you're right. And the way we bake today is a melting pot. It is a gumbo. For sure. It's, it is all of the peoples who have come to this country, and it's all the ingredients, you know, that you have, we have at our disposal to bake with. Um, it's flavors that we've sampled in restaurants, you know, that have introduced us to these new flavors. Um, right. It's who our children are in school with. Um, it's words we're more comfortable saying than we used to. I mean, it is definitely, it has definitely affected the way that we bake. I think we're in a bit of a baking funk right now. I don't know where we're headed. We're, we haven't created any new content in a while. Let's just say that. You'll be hearing more from Anne along the way as she puts things in historical context for us. But as for what she said about baking being in a funk right now, maybe our next two guests might give Anne reason to hope. Let me introduce you to two incredible bakers, Tracy and Kelly Wright. They're sisters, they live in Atlanta, and Tracy says they bake with a purpose. A lot of health-related issues that black people have are because of the foods we eat. So we wanted to be able to still enjoy these things that we grew up on without having to worry about it compromising our health and our well-being. It's kind of making a movement, like bring awareness to what you're putting in your body. What they bake, their cakes, cookies, muffins, donuts, it covers the range of 21st century eating. You can eat vegan from two dough girls, or you can be an omnivore. But you can always know that no matter what the ingredient is, Kelly and Tracy have gone out of their way to find the healthiest and purest version because Kelly says a cake should never be the first or last thing somebody has to give up when they try to get healthier. We want you to be able to have it on your, your last days and still enjoy it and not feel like, oh, the doctor said I couldn't have this. We wanted to, you know, make it special, make it so you don't feel guilty, you know, take some of that guilt out. Kelly and Tracy created their own bakery called Two Dough Girls, a name that pays tribute to the great outcast song, Two Dope Boys in a Cadillac. It's just two dope boys in a Cadillac. It's so sucker MC stepped up to me. Now listen to that. I know all you outcast fans in the house are feeling all this right now. And let's take it back to the cake. The two dough girls bake cakes and cookies with cultural roots and dirty South hip hop. And as a service to the African American community. And even though Ann Byrne didn't know about the two dough girls until I introduced them to her, she says they're working in a vein that has deep historical roots, the application of pop culture to baking. If you go back through, there were cakes named after opera singers who were touring the United States. I mean, we've always been 
really open, I think in baking, to accepting whatever was happening at the time. Go back even further in American history, and they were naming cakes after presidents. When I first met Tracy and Kelly, the two dough girls, they were making one of their most popular creations. It's called the Southern Playalistic Cake, again, named after an outcast album, Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music. So there's a little salt, baking soda in there, plenty of flour to make it fluffy and, and soft and pretty. And everybody who's baked a cake know that you start with the dry ingredients mm-hmm. and then You'd put add a, the wet ones. Mm-hmm. Right, do it separate. We actually separated it this time for you. Other ingredients in the cake include brown butter and cane sugar. And if you want to know just how picky Kelly and Tracy are about their ingredients, listen to them talk about looking for the right sugar. In our business, we learned that some granulated sugars have pulverized bones in it, which from keeps- From animals. From animals. Well, we don't know. How do we know? What, they what, could be human bones. They could be. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ever buy like a natural sugar from maybe Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, or Sprouts or something, sometimes the labels will say that free it's of vegan. bone char. Bone. And it's like, what? Why are you putting bones in there? But it's so it's a, so, it so it doesn't clump. clump. Yeah. But who cares about clumps? Just smash them. The Wright sisters also include pecans in both the batter and the icing of the Southern Playalistic cake. And it's a straight-up nod to the South. First of all, they smell great when you toast them, but then they also just pop. They pop more in the that cake. That nutty flavor it, really um, comes out. It's simple, but but popping. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's kind of like outcast music. Too. Yeah, simple but popping. You yeah. know. Yeah. Did like, y'all ever think about southern <laughs> southern playalistic cake-a-lack? <laughs> <laughs> Not till just right now when you said that, but that's well, hilarious. We all can play with that that's after hilarious. we finish totally. this interview and we're eating cake. Totally, because so. we love to spin off pop culture and music yes. and so people can relate to and remember, you know, and mm-hmm. Southern Playlistic is a name that people will remember and hopefully a flavor that they'll remember when, they, when they try it. I'm just glad to be standing and watching somebody <laughs> make a cake and I don't have to do it myself. Yes. So roll in. All right. Tracy holds the mixing bowl steady as she makes the batter and they go deeper into the baking process. We're adding in the whipped egg, the egg whites, to the um, to the rest of the batter. Now it's looking like cake. Yes. Still nice and um, heavy and rich and it's getting fluffy again. Yes. You have good bowl technique. Thank you. That's what happens when, uh, never mind. You know what, say it, say it. Go ahead, say it. Say it. That's what happens when you take years and years to perfect your your bowl technique. Because that's how we kind of got into baking as children. It was like, you know, all the the family get-togethers were pretty much at our house and we were like the sweets house. Like you guys have to make the pound cake. You guys have to have the carrot cake. And with my mom, she was like, well, you guys have to help. So if you guys want to eat, you guys want this carrot cake, you want all this, you have to help us. Mm-hmm. So we were in there cracking eggs and um, mixing, mixing, measuring, 
um, course cleaning and just learning different techniques. So yeah, she's had half her life to. You've been doing it your whole life. Yeah, pretty to, much to figure it out to her her bowl technique. We didn't we didn't eat out a lot growing up and. Like she said, every holiday, it's like you better have that, those desserts, <laughs> or, or it's going to be trouble. Right? It's like <laughs> you guys are the ones, or if the you know we were going somewhere else, it's like you better bring the pound cake, you better bring that carrot cake, and a couple other dishes. Yeah, so we became like the part of the family that did the desserts, and it's like every like we'll do all that other stuff. Don't worry about it. Just make sure that make cake sure is the there. Cake is on the counter. Yes. It's already baked. When I get there, please. Thanks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. So now all we would do is add the pecan. Is it pecans or pecans? How do y'all say I it heard down here in Georgia? There is a great debate about that. I heard it's pecans when they're on the tree, and when they come off, it's pecans. <laughs> I don't think that's right. <laughs> I, 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 th I think it's kind of like, well, real, I, one thing I do know is that most people say it the way they grew up saying it, mm -hmm. however right. their parents said it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents said pecans. Here's the thing. I don't think anyone would ever get insulted by one pronunciation over the other. So now the batter so is So the batter done. is done. Wow. And, and it, you see it's very like mousse-like. It's super thick. Oh, it's it is. It's mousse-like. It's heavy still. Yes. Mousse is kind of light. Yeah. It's a yeah. heavy mousse. You're right. Maybe like pudding. Yeah, more like a pudding, like a pudding pie. It just looks like really delicious cake batter to me. You want to well, taste it? You yes, can fry it. As soon as I can. There's got to be a spoon, spoon in this yes. house somewhere. <laughs> He's like, yes, please. All right, now I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm going to get a bite. He has a pecan, pecan and a spoon. <laughs> pecan. <laughs> All right. His eyes are closed, so. All right. They've been closed. All right. That's telling me everything. Great God Almighty, that's good. Yeah, even before we put it in the oven? That's mm -hmm. awesome. The next step would be putting the Southern Playalistic cake in the oven for 20 to 25 minutes at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. But just so we didn't have to wait, the sisters had brought one they had already made, and it tasted just playalistic, and definitely even defiantly Southern. And after they finished baking, we sat down with slices and carried on our conversation. The Wright sisters say their work to make healthier desserts requires a ton of research. And Kelly says that research has led them to some dead ends. We made some big messes. It took a while to kind of, okay, well, this is the kind of egg you need for a vegan cookie. This is what you have to do for brownies. This is what you have to do for cake. So it did take quite a bit of research, a lot of trial and error to figure that out. And still, like the pound cake we did recently, it's just like, man, like we can't make pound cake vegan. We can't. Like right. you can't because pound cake has that signature fluff, that signature density. And it's like, we can't disrespect pound cake like that <laughs> down here in the South anyway. That's right. <laughs> so we had to really just like buckle down and say we're going to figure this out because it's something we wanted to do yes. and it's just like a science project you have to keep doing your research keep trying things out because it's been like a couple years since yeah, the first we time we tried it and we just got it down like this spring or something mm -hmm. and one of them was like a sponge like it's like there uh, this is not weird. a pound cake texture <laughs> and just... i don't want to do that i don't want to say oh this is pound cake and you're over here chewing it like it's bubble gum <laughs> like 
people won't come back for that. Well, no, and people will know who grew up eating pound cake will <laughs> right. know that it ain't pound cake. Right, like, what is that? They're they're liars over there. Like, yeah. don't don't talk to them. Right. <laughs> don't buy from them. Well, but it seems to me that y'all have, have pulled off something harder than simply finding vegan alternatives. Not everything on your menu is vegan. You no. just have figured out ways to make it vegan right. for people who want it that way. Yes. Uh, but the cake you just fed me was cannot be vegan. cannot no. be veganized. We no, would not disrespect not it that way. Well, but you know the thing about it is you're you're using other healthier alternatives in terms of the ingredients that you source. Right. We want to um, keep it simple. You know, I think the simplicity you can taste that simplicity. We've already talked about how the two dough girls are dedicated to making black families healthier through their baking. But they say that one of their other goals is to show that two black women can run a business on their own and keep that business in their family. Even Tracy's son, who's just in the first grade, helps out. He's really into it. Like, he'll be watching and sometimes he wants to help. He's a great salesman as he well. Is. Oh, really? He yes. is. <laughs> Tell me about it. He's a great little salesman, Tracy. Like, like. people will come by our table. Like <laughs> we're popped up at a farmer's market or an event or something, and he'll be like, we've got brownies, and he's doing the arm and, and like, showing the display and turning and, and saying, would you like to try this? And, yeah, he's all for it. He's all in. Yeah. And, and hopefully he'll keep that spirit because he's I only so. six. So you know how teenagers are because that's when we're really going to put him to work. Because he's not tall enough to wash the dishes yet, but he's already asked if he could. So, so soon. I, <laughs> well, like, Believe I, I, me, I'm ready for you soon. I, I remember my Aunt Mary when it was time to uh, shell peas or string beans or something like that. And particularly to make sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. You know, she would put my little keister up on a stool in front of the sink. <laughs> with a dishpan full of cabbage, and she would hand me what was basically just a tin can with one lid cut off of it, which she she was tough. She would do it with a pocket knife. Oh, my God. And she was blind. Oh. Oh. She was amazing. She sounds like a woman. Right. Oh, she was was the OG canner and preserver for our entire (laughs) family. And, you know, she she, would be like, I'm going to make you a kraut cutter. And I want you to stand over the this dishpan until it's kraut sized. Yeah. You know, and there'd be like five heads of cabbage in there. Wow. And you know, I think it's okay, not just okay, but probably a great idea to put your kids to work. Definitely. Knowing where their food comes do. from. That yeah. too. Because he likes to juice lemons. He likes to do stuff. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> And just to, to have him around and, and let him know what, what does mommy do all day. And also to um, just kind of show him an alternative to a career in the future. Like if he's like, you know, I want to just travel or maybe I want to cook like my mom and auntie or something. Like there's alternatives because I know growing up for us, it was just like, are you going to be a teacher? Right. Are you going to work in the courtroom? Are you going to be in law? Doctor? Are you interested in any of those things? And it's like, if you're not, it's like, well, what do you do? Right. So what are your your hopes for Two Dough Girls as it grows? Well, another part of our growth as as black women business owners, we want to be, I would say, maybe a transition, maybe for women. A who, resource. Yeah, a resource, a place where they 
if anyone needs to start fresh and anew, like anyone that may have um, like a history and has a hard time finding work anywhere else, we want to give per- people a second chance mm-hmm. so that they don't have to turn back to crime or whatever or or a domestic violence situation or anything like that or, or refugees. Yeah. Like people who who need help the most, you know, better yourself and make a life for yourself outside of whatever they're going through. Because we we love the sense of community here and we want to be a part of that. Cake and community. I think we ought to try more of that. Our thanks to the two Doe girls, Tracy and Kelly Wright. If you are ever in the Atlanta area, you gotta try that Southern Playalistic cake. And you can learn more about them on our website. Now we heard the Wright sisters talk about how they view baking as a way to improve the lives of African Americans. So I think it's time to bring back Ann Byrne for a little more context about how baking to advance the social good, that goes back a long way. The cookbooks were a fundraising tool for suffrage movement, for women who could, and they and their message was, you can be at home, you can cook well, you can feed your family and still support the right to vote. Affecting change through something as simple as recipes and cake. We've already established this season that you can, in fact, change the world over a bowl of gumbo. Looks like you can do it over a slice of cake, too. Just ahead, we serve up cake from the pages of the wildly popular and greatly misunderstood 1980s cookbook, White Trash Cooking. I'm Chuck Reese. This is the Bitter Southerner Podcast, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking on this episode about how cakes bring communities together and how our history is buried deep inside the batter and the frosting. So let's take a minute to listen to Tori Hook. Tori grew up in Franklin, Tennessee, about a half hour south of Nashville, but now she lives in Kansas City, Missouri. We talked to her on Skype, and she told us that not long ago she had made for the first time a cake that had been passed down in her family for generations. The cake that I made is my great-great-grandmother's banana cake. And she made it every year for my grandfather's birthday. And so he made it some when he was younger for my dad, when my dad was growing up. And that cake made an impression. Um, And it's a very moist cake, kind of dense, very sweet and it has this frosting on it that's like uh, almost like a marshmallow cream. I think now they would call it a seven-minute frosting. Now, they might, but her great-great-grandmother didn't. She always called it a 22-minute frosting, which I was very confused about. I, I never met her. You know, I just, just heard about it. And I realized it was probably 22-minute instead of seven-minute because when she would have made it, she would have been whipping it by hand. Uh, and not with a mixer, which I'm sure would have taken quite a bit longer. 
Tori's great-great-grandmother made the cake in the house she lived in her entire life, located in a little town in the Missouri Boot Hill. Tori's grandparents still live there, but the cake with the 22-minute frosting sadly had fallen through the cracks of time. I think that when you forget culinary traditions or really any traditions, it just feels like you lose a part of yourself. And so something I've really started trying to do for holidays and um, just other special occasions is uh, reviving some of those recipes. So for her dad's 50th birthday, Tori decided to make that cake. She first asked her grandparents for the recipe, but they didn't know where it was. They did, however, go looking. And they finally found it, typed up on a 3 by 5 index card by Tori's great-great-grandmother. Tori followed that recipe, adapted it to some dietary no-nos in her family, and served it to her father. He loved it. I was really skeptical about it working and creating this pillowy, marshmallowy texture that he remembered so fondly. But sure enough, it worked, and he was so excited about that frosting. Thanks, Tori, for telling us your story. The types of cakes that define Southern culture take many different forms. The pound cake, the coconut cake, the red velvet cake. But Southerners are weird, so we like to add some creations that stray a long way from the classics. Things with names like the potato chocolate cake or the Our Lord's Scripture Cake, or Irma Lee Stratton's Chocolate Dump Cake. Now, all of those recipes are featured in a 1986 cookbook by Ernest Matthew Meichler called White Trash Cooking. In the uh, beginning of the book, I state that uh, there's white trash and then there's white trash, and white trash with capital letters has manners and pride. The one with small letters doesn't have any manners and pride. That's Ernie speaking back in 1986 on Michael Feldman's What Do You Know, a show that was produced back then by Wisconsin Public Radio. Now, Ernie Meichler in some ways seemed like an unlikely guy to write such a cookbook. He did grow up poor and white in rural Florida, but Ernie also grew up gay and wrote this tribute to the food he'd grown up on after he had moved to San Francisco and built a new life for himself. And sadly, two years after this interview was taped, the AIDS epidemic ended Ernie's life. But his book endures, and it offers a thorough and rich account of recipes and conventions that many of us grew up with, some of us have forgotten, and that folks who aren't Southern couldn't imagine in the first place. Sometimes you have to take two or three cracks at it before you get it right, but... uh... The food is very good, but the names and the language and all that, you know, they're hard to beat, and I really wanted to get that down. Now, White Trash Cooking is not strictly a baking book. It's full of other recipes, like broiled squirrel, the anti-stick peanut butter sandwich, cooter pie, and something called whiskey sauce. Here's the recipe. Two cups of sugar, a half a pound of butter, a teaspoon of pure vanilla, one pinch of salt, and one entire cup of Jack Daniels whiskey. Use it on uh, any kind of dessert that you want to use it on. (laughs) Hopefully a lot of them. It's a real strong whiskey sauce, too. It's good. No, they used it on on bread pudding and uh, 
some different things that you know were a little uh, not bland, but not so heavily flavored. Now, the recipes in White Trash Cooking were inspired by people that Ernie knew personally when he was growing up. Petey Pickett was his childhood friend, and we reached her by Skype from her home in Florida. Ernie never met a stranger. So everyone he met, he made friends with and talked to about cooking. So he would gather recipes that way, old family recipes of different people he talked to. So that so that the for lack of a better word, manuscript grew and grew and grew until it finally was a book. But the recipes are just one part of the cookbook. White Trash Cooking also features Ernie's beautiful photographs of the South. I went through the countryside and I tried to tried to take pictures of things that would evoke what we really came from and what we really are. And there's some rural people. And what a lot of people in the North uh, seem to think is that they're all poor. Well, that man in there with a the felt hat on could be a millionaire. I mean, you know, it's just, it's a lifestyle. It's not an economic, I mean, it's not a, uh, it's a social thing. It, it's, it's so poetic. That second voice you heard after Ernie's is Bill Fagley. He's the former chief curator at the New Orleans Museum of Art. Now, Bill and Ernie actually dated in the 1970s, and part of White Trash Cooking was put together by Ernie with Bill at his side. He did a beautiful job. I mean, I think he did a much better job maybe than some of the renowned so-called great Southern writers because his portrait of white trash people was so poignant and so honest and to the point. And he did it with great reverence. Ernie's photos of Southern life are what first attracted a contributor to the bitter Southerner, Michael Adno, both to the book and to Ernie's story. Michael wrote a James Beard Award-winning piece for our magazine about Ernie called The Short and Brilliant Life of Ernest Matthew Michler. In the 1980s, some folks wrote Ernie Michler off as a yahoo, a curiosity. But at the same time, others thought he might be the most brilliant Southern folklorist and photographer of that era. Speaking to us by Skype, Michael says reaction to white trash cooking was distinctly mixed. It was deemed one of you know the best cookbooks of the spring cookbook season by the New York Times. I mean, Harper Lee blurbed it. Uh, Roy Blount Jr. You know, blurbed. It. I mean, there was just. Um, there was just an outpouring of, of respect and warmth for it. But at the same time, you know, the New Yorker uh, magazine rejected an ad for it. They cited that it would, you know, offend its readership. And that was also Ernie's trouble with getting it published is a lot of publishers were so afraid of publishing something with a title like that. Now, I remember myself when White Trash Cooking came out because I was living in New York City at the time. My first thought when I saw it in a bookstore was, oh, my God, what kind of unmerciful shit am I going to have to listen to because of that book? But then I bought a copy and I read it. And I learned that it was chock full of heart. And a lot of other people felt that way, too, because only a month after White Trash Cooking hit the bookstores, its original publisher called the Jargon Society 
decided it simply couldn't meet the demand for the book. Jargon had received 30,000 orders, but it had printed only 5,000 copies. So it sold the rights to another publisher. Mike Adno says it's no surprise that 30 years later, people are still talking about white trash cooking. He did like what all great art does, which is, you know, cultivate empathy, like, you know, help people better understand the world. You know, for it to kind of still have that stain power um, 30 years later, I mean, you know, it's aged pretty well, I think. All the recipes in white trash cooking are affordable to cook. You're not going to spend a lot of money on ingredients because the people who gave Ernie the recipes didn't have the money to spend on fancy ingredients. And Michael Adno says that one of his favorite cake recipes from the cookbook is something called Reba's Rainbow Icebox Cake. Ernie learned about this cake on a trip to Alabama. I went over there and I, I met this lady, uh, Reba. What was funny is that recipe was one of the first recipes that the publisher wanted to try. So they had this big party one night, and they made this Reba's Rainbow Icebox cake, which I thought it was really delicious. But instead of you know going all the way, they went. Uh, they had some sort of uh, little uh, uh, little French pastry shipped in on the side, you know, in case people didn't like it. <laughs> and everyone was afraid of it except me, and I ate it. I thought it was really very very good. That was a lot better than the French. <laughs> Now, Reba's Rainbow Icebox Cake includes the following. One cup of confectioner's sugar, two eggs separated, one cup of pecans, half a cup of oleo margarine, one number two can of Dole Crush pineapple, two boxes of lime jello, two boxes of cherry jello, and graham crackers. Now, Ernie didn't put a picture of that cake in his own book, but I just had to see one for myself. So we asked a Georgia chef to make one for us. Cassandra Laughlin has a great job. She teaches cooking classes on cruise lines as part of a culinary partnership between America's Test Kitchen and a cruise company. But fortunately, she didn't have to get on a boat to find the ingredients for Reba's Rainbow Icebox Cake. I was able to find everything in the modern day context except the oleo margarine. That I could not find, but margarine is pretty common and very affordable. All the ingredients, I think, total cost less than $10. So right now I'm uh, whipping the egg whites until they're fluffy. And this is going to take a while. This is such a weird... This is such an interesting... <laughs> combination and I would not normally think of adding raw egg whites to a cake mixture that's not baked I mean and of course we know that the, the cases of salmonella are like one in 300,000 but it's something that we as a modern American public worry about probably a little bit too much I'm going to put these in another I can't tell you the last time I've whisked egg whites by hand. The recipe did mention an egg beater, which is sort of a, not in a modern day kitchen anymore. I mean, my grandmother has one, but it's not something that I have. 
and I don't know what it's supposed to look like because there are not many pictures in the cookbook, or most of the pictures are of people and how they live, which I also thought was very interesting because you don't expect that from a cookbook. You expect cookbooks to be mostly about food, and for that time in the 80s, for a cookbook to be about the people, and if I took this recipe to another country, what would it look like? Like, would it be diced mango instead? Would it be macadamia nuts instead of pecans? Who knows? And I think this is really a culture of using what you have and making it work. Do you remember Sandra Lee? People criticized her type of cooking, semi-homemade, but I think this is a nod to that type of cuisine. People that maybe they have limited income or limited cooking space and they make it work. All right, here we go. So here um, I have the cherry jello and this is cherry jello and um, two cups of liquid, but one cup of liquid is the pineapple juice from the can. So we've wasted nothing. We didn't waste the egg white, we didn't waste the egg yolk, and we didn't waste the juice from the pineapple can, which I can really appreciate um, as a, a chef because I hate to waste product. And I appreciate when people try to use everything they have. So this is the part where I would normally beat this with an egg beater, but I'm just trying to make this fluffy so that when I layer this on top of the cake, it's going to be nice and fluffy. So right now we're getting ready to make the whipped topping, which the whipped topping is um, heavy whipping cranes. But you, you can't let this go too far or it will turn into butter. I just wanna check on this to make sure I didn't take it too far. This is perfect. Uh, because it looks like frosting. And I think that is the point of this cake is for this to look like a frosting. And economically speaking, this whipped cream is probably the most expensive part of the cake. The graham crackers are usually on sale and affordable. The jello you can buy pretty affordably. The nuts are also expensive, uh, but he also mentioned that you could take them or leave them, leave them out. And then we're gonna decorate this, just the piece de la resistance, well, with some maraschino cherries. This is always good advice with a recipe, is make it the way it's written the very first time, try it, and then you can experiment or add. Because if you start experimenting or adding and something goes wrong, you don't know if it's your changes or additions or if it's the actual recipe itself. And two, you should enjoy it the way that person created it or wrote it. Words of wisdom from Atlanta chef Cassandra Laughlin. We thank her for bravely taking up our challenge to make Reba's Rainbow Icebox Cake. And it really does kind of look like a rainbow, sort of a psychedelic rainbow, but a rainbow nonetheless. You can see for yourself on our website. And that's it for us today, y'all. Our producer, Sean Powers, his job is gathering the ingredients and writing the recipes for our shows, and our editor, Josephine Bennett, helps make sure you get the best tasting cake we can cook up. And if you want to learn more about amazing cake recipes or other Southern recipes, check out a Bitter Southerner story called The Seven Essential Southern Dishes by North Carolina food writer Sherry Castle. We've included it in the show notes section of our site. 
That's also where you can find Michael Adno's story on Ernie Michler and Ann Burns' piece on Southern Table Blessings. Thanks to all those writers, to Petey Pickett, and to Tori Hook, who is a card-carrying member of the Bitter Southerner family. Ever South, our theme song, was written by the always incredible Patterson Hood and performed by his band, Drive-By Truckers. We heard additional music from DeWolf Music. And if you like the Bitter Southerner podcast, please review it and rate it on Apple Podcasts, even if you listen to it elsewhere. Those ratings and reviews really help spread the word. Our show is a co-production of Georgia Public Broadcasting and the Bitter Southerner magazine. You can access more from each episode at gpb.org slash podcast. I'm Chuck Reese, and my three instructions remain constant. Hug more necks, abide no hatred, and always spend your time doing what you love with the people you love. And until next time, eat more cake.